Good morning. If you have a Bible handy, would you be turning to Galatians chapter 4? Galatians chapter 4. We are grateful that you are here, grateful for the great day together. Uh, we were talking, I guess it was about 11 o'clock or so last night. I was getting ready to get in the shower, and I looked at Hannah. I said, can you remember, do you imagine uh, last week that we were going crazy on Saturday night, trying to remember if we had everything packed, everything ready for vacation Bible school, the van was loaded down, we had a list of things to grab on Sunday morning, we had to get up, we had to be here, uh, but it was such a great day, and I just want to take a moment, uh, this is usually, of course, our largest gathering of the week, the most folks, but to take a moment here and say thank you to all those uh, who helped. Again, we, we tried to say it uh, Wednesday night, but we are, are so appreciative of all who had a part in it. Um, we had many who helped set up, and of course, many who helped serve during the day, and even some who, who made it to help us clean up afterwards, and it's a, a whirlwind of a day. I think last year, I told several, last year was the first time that uh, I had worked so hard. If you remember last year, we had uh, the sign that said, our God is so big, and kind of blew mountains or looked like water up here, and you know, I, I, I almost, I injured my wrist trying to get all that together, I think, last year, and then we said amen, and in about five minutes, Frank had it broken down, and it was gone, and I was just like, oh, it kind of hurts, it was all at work, and there it's just gone, but uh, I've already heard several good compliments, and many of you that uh, enjoy the day, and we do, even if it goes by very fast, um, we appreciate all the help, because it takes so many folks to get it done, uh, from everything, all the ladies who prepare the snacks, and help serve, and those who teach, and just everyone involved, and, and as the, the few that kind of headed up here, I made mention Wednesday night, but as it kind of falls to Hannah and I, as part of our duties to help do that and put it together. We appreciate your help so much and, and are thankful for the, the chance that we can spend doing that. Uh, we're thankful for your attendance today. We're thankful to Charles and his leading us in our singing and his preparation, Chase, and his, his thoughts, obviously, that he put into it and time and effort that he put into helping us think about that and doing so in such a great way. Appreciate Joe. I could listen to Joe's tender heart pray for, for a long time. Um, we appreciate many of our men who do that in such a way, but it, it's always encouraging to us as we uh, worship together here. I ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 4. You know, a lot of times the preacher will say, uh, let's turn there, let's mark it, uh, or we're going to begin there, or, you know, we're going to talk about it a little bit, but we're going to move elsewhere. This morning and today, I'm going to ask you to not just camp out, but I'd like to ask you to go ahead and pour some concrete and put up some walls and just live here. Uh, we're going to stay in Galatians chapter 4 today. If you were with us on Wednesday night, I made mention uh, that I had been thinking about this. It's a little random because we might be better served by taking a, a longer look at the book of Galatians. But I was looking at some outlines and thinking about some things. And I realized how much richness there is here in Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to challenge you, though, and ask for your help because it's a little difficult, a little difficult. Now, by that, I don't mean it's impossible to understand. You don't have to have a PhD or some kind of, of higher education degree to understand Galatians chapter 4, but it does take a little bit of, of effort. It is a little more difficult. If you were to read through in your daily Bible reading Galatians chapter 4, I would challenge that for many people, and even some folks who are decent Bible students, you might read through Galatians chapter 4 and just be one of those chapters where you go, I'm just going to keep moving. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what's being said or discussed here, and I don't, I don't have time maybe to go and, and to pull some commentaries and to look harder. It's not impossible, but it is a little difficult. I was thinking about other lessons. You know, sometimes we as preachers have those really basic lessons. There's nothing wrong with them. I think about sometimes we teach our young, uh, young people and even our children the word joy. 
right? And so the preacher preaches that you need to put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. That's absolutely biblical. That'll preach, and it's true. It's also a little simple, right, for even children to understand. And when we come to Galatians, in particular the old book, but in particular Galatians chapter 4, we would be benefited to dig a little deeper and to think about what exactly is being said here. So we want to talk about this entire book or this entire chapter today. And if you've opened up there, you'll notice that in verse 21, there may be a difference. You may have a new heading It may be a new section in your Bible. Beginning in verse 21 through the end of the chapter is what we're going to talk about this afternoon. If you have an outline or a bulletin in front of you, you'll see that there is a reference to the allegory of Ishmael and Isaac. And we're going to talk about that this afternoon, picking up in verse 21. First of all, though, let's talk very briefly about the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is often called the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty. The Magna Carta of Christian Liberty. Now, I see some of you older folks, you're trying to peel back in your brain and remember what that Magna Carta is. I'll confess, I know that. I, I know that's a thing. I know it involves history. And even myself, I had to go, well, what, where did that come from? What exactly was involved with that? Well, it was the English Charter from around the 1200s, 1215. It's also called the Charter of Freedoms because it discussed this idea of the people and the government and freedoms. When we call it the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, that is because we realize that Christ, that Jesus, brought us freedom with his death upon the cross. And I know it's really hard to make out maybe from where you're sitting there, but this is one of those backgrounds that that I can pull from the the website we use. they, They look really great. They don't always translate as real easy to see. But behind that triangle in the middle is the word freedom, freedom, freedom. Freedom. In the top it says, it is for freedom. Christ has set us free. That's the reason it's referred to as the the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, because that document, which had shaped even our own country's documents, right? That's where we usually learn about it in school, because that idea of freedom and freedom from the government or even kind of with the government but having our own freedoms was started with the Magna Carta and discussed even with our own country's documents that all discuss this idea of freedom. Now the book was written, we might say, from Paul with love. Now I ask you to turn to Galatians and to sort of, we're going to stay there and we're going to reference a lot of verses that bring out what we're saying. Notice when we say with, or excuse me, from Paul, with love, that involves the people here. The love goes both ways as it should. Notice in chapter 4 in verse number 14, Paul says, And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. And notice So he says here, you received me. You received me like I'm an angel or like I'm Jesus in the flesh. You received me that way. But keep reading and notice verse 15. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. What do we say? Well, we oftentimes say, I would take a bullet for you, right? Or I, I would stand in the way of harm for you. But he says, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So we notice, first of all, it's written from Paul, but with love because they loved him. 
He says, you received me in verse 14. That doesn't seem like he showed up and they said, hey, I got this room in the back. I'll give you a really good rate. Here's the key and you just go stay back there. No, they received him, brought him in. And by the time it's done, they would go so far as to give up a body part for him. But also, he shows the love. Notice in chapter 4 and verse 11, he says, I am afraid for you. I'm afraid for you. Who are you usually afraid for? You know, I think about the tragedies of the world. Unfortunately, this week that we've read about and seen the the visuals of the fires that have been going on out in in Hawaii and the devastation and the loss of life that's going on out there. You know what happens when I see that on television? It makes me sad and I want to pray for them. But you know what I, I don't know? I don't know any of those people, really, right? I don't, I don't have that connection to them. But you know what I know and what I feel when I pray for my children or I, I pray for you? I'm afraid for you. I worry about you. I know you. I care for you. It's that love that connects us. But speaking of children, notice in verse number 19 of chapter 4 where he says, My little children. Now, we think about our country and what's sometimes one of the most derogatory comments that you can make, especially with men, right? You call somebody a boy, that, that, that's bad. You know, you don't, you don't call me a boy. This could be looked at as something bad, right? You say, he's, I'm not his child. He's not over me. But we understand the care that Paul is putting into it, even with the verses we've already looked at. He says, my little children, I love you like family. This is written from Paul with Love. Now, this is by no means the, the harshest letter in the New Testament. There are some others that we could spend time on where he really sort of lays down that law and gets hard with them and tells them they need to change. But he has some difficult things to say. How can he say that? Why is it that he can say that? Because they know the love that they share. Who was this written from? It's written from Paul. That's important. But also noticing that it was written with love. Number two, it was written to Jewish and Gentile Christians. That's important to note note as well and to use those designations. Why? Because in this time, there is a bit of a difference. Now, as he's going to mention in this particular passage or in this letter, and Paul's going to mention in other places, we are one in Christ. We are one. We don't differentiate and talk about, well, here are the male Christians and they're better than the female Christians or the American Christians are greater than those in Nicaragua or the other places we just prayed for. That's not it. We are all Christians and we should carry that name. But as I look around this room and I've gotten to know you all, we come from different places. We come from some cases from different parts of the world, different parts of this country, And even with that, we come from different families. And so that kind of matters as we think about writing and discussing and talking about these things. So who were the Jewish Christians? Well, some of these people that he's writing to, they're coming from Judaism and they're coming to Christ. Right? This central unity around Christ. But they're coming from Judaism. They're coming from the over 600 laws. They're coming from the sacrifices. They're coming from the months and the days and the feasts. But then over here, you have these Gentile Christians. And what are they coming from? Well, many of them are coming from what we call paganism, right? Or an idolatrous living. They're they're not worried about the Jews, but they've got their own set of history and things that they follow along with. But they're all coming to Christ. 
How many times does Paul talk about being brought together in unity in Christ? That is wonderful. But boy, we've got this past sometimes. And the past that we're talking about this morning is the Jewish and the Gentile Christians. So what's the problem then? Why did Paul take time to write these words out? The problem is a Moses-Christ hybrid faith, we might say. A Moses-Christ hybrid faith. Now, for the Jewish, or excuse me, the Gentile Christians on, on this side, as we're kind of using today, the, the Gentile Christians, they've not participated in that. They've heard the name Moses, but they don't care so much about Moses, maybe. But for these Jewish Christians, they're having a hard time leaving Moses behind. And so what they're doing is they're not as, again, as I'm kind of just standing here on the stage, but they're not standing as one in Christ. They're kind of standing in the middle of the Judaism and the Christian age, and they're trying to make this hybrid. Well, you know, Christ is great, but we also got to keep these feast days. We also got to have these sacrifices. And part of the problem is, is what they're doing is they're looking at those Gentiles, Christians over there, and they're pulling them to them. You know, hey, that's great that you've been baptized into Christ, but while, you're, while you've been baptized, you also need to be circumcised. And you also need to keep these feast days. And you also need to make these sacrifices. And so it's a Moses-Christ hybrid faith. Now, you don't have to know everything about the law of Moses, but this is where it gets a little, you know, dig a little deeper. I hope you understand. But what we're saying is, is the law of Moses. It's not Moses the man, but it's this law that they are trying to keep and mesh together. It doesn't sound like that idea of freedom that's on the back part of that slide. It sounds like something different. Notice in chapter 1 and verse number 6, how do we know that this is the case? Notice in chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, I marvel that you are turning away. So for those Jewish Christians on this side who have turned towards Christ, they're turning back. They're turning away. In fact, he says that in chapter 4 and verse number 9. How is it that you turn again? That's the problem here. The problem is the turning. And it's the turning away from Christ and trying to mesh together the law of Moses and the freedom that is in Christ. So here's the question. We spent 15 minutes on the introduction. The question is, when are we going to get done? Uh, the question is, why do I care? Why does it matter to me? Why have you spent 15 minutes explaining to us all this history? Let's dig a little deeper for just a moment. Number one, their status. Let's think about their status. First of all, their status is bondage. Notice in chapter 4 and verse number 3. He says, even so we, when we were children were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, if you have an English Standard Version in front of you, you may see the word or the words elementary, elementary principles. We might say the ABCs, the elements of this world. You are stuck with these elementary principles that are keeping you in bondage. Now, for our Jewish Christians, that's the law of Moses. The, those, those elements, those elementary things are the law of Moses. For the Gentiles who are over here, it could be paganism going back to the bondage of their pagan idolatrous ways, or it could be this addition to the law of Christianity, right? That again, they're, they're trying to find this hybrid, and, and the bondage could be that, that they are trying to find the hybrid, and they need to just have the freedom that is in Christ. 
Now, here's Paul's point. Paul's point is the law had a purpose. The law had a purpose. Notice in in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 19. It begins, this section begins, what purpose then does the law serve? And now go to verse 24. Therefore, the law was our tutor. If you have a new King James, you probably see the word tutor there. If you have a King James, you probably see the word schoolmaster. And we've talked about translations not too long ago. If you have an English Standard Version, I'm guessing, I believe, that yours has the word guardian. I think those are interesting words to help explain to us what purpose the law served. If you're like me, I've grown up hearing that the Old Testament was our teacher or that it taught them, right? And that's true. That's the idea of the tutor or the schoolmaster, someone that's teaching you. But I was doing a little more studying, and I don't have it all figured out. I'm not saying this is exactly how it is. But I like the idea of guardian, that word, because someone said that the original word that's used there is not so much a teacher, but it's someone that is like a, a guardian that is, would watch over children and would even bring them to the teacher. We, I don't think babysitter is the right word, right, or nanny, but kind of that idea of someone that's watching over children, they may not be the teacher, but they would lead them to the teacher. What was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to bring them and to bring us to Christ. That was the purpose of the law. I understand tutor and schoolmaster, and that's fine, but also as a guardian to bring these people and to bring us unto Christ. But here's the thing. Here's the problem. The law was also a curse. Go back to chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, and you will see there, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. This was the bondage. And this was bondage because the law could not set them free. It was a curse. It served a purpose and it could bring them to Christ, to know Christ and to see this difference. But it was a curse and no one could be free under the law. They were in bondage. There's really this really interesting word that we think of sometimes, right? And the Bible uses it often. It's that little short word. B-U-T, but. Notice in chapter 4 and verses 4 through 7, but. You see, a moment ago, we said their first status is they're under bondage. But, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Therefore, verse 7, you are no longer a slave but a son. You know what happens to us? We're born into a family. And I don't think we can ever fully wrap our minds around what it would have been to possibly be a slave and then to possibly receive that adoption as a part of a family as a son. That change from slavery to sonship. But what Paul is saying is, their first status is they are in bondage, but, but Christ came. God sent forth his son to redeem. 
and you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. He had previously discussed this. In verse 25 of chapter 3, he says, But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. A tutor isn't needed anymore, and when that is gone, you are sons. Question, who are sons? Who can be called a child of God? And what does verse number 26 say and 27? For as many of you as were baptized. That is who can be redeemed. That is who is redeemed. That is who can be called a son. As many as were baptized. Only Jews? Only men? Only white men? No, as many of you as were baptized. That's why he goes on in verse 28 to say, Neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, for all are one. Their status was bondage. Bondage to the law of Moses, but now they are redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They are redeemed by Jesus Christ. How wonderful to be called children of God. And notice in verse number 9, in this new relationship with God, You know God, and you are known by God. Whether it be a professional athlete that we sometimes look up to, whether it be a government official that we sometimes would would hold in high esteem, we would look at them, and if they looked at you and looked at me and they said, Hey, Joel, I'd say, they know my name. Do they know me? How do they know my name? We know God, and we are known by God. We are redeemed. Their status was in bondage, but now they are redeemed. However, that but works both ways, doesn't it? Because their third status, if you're filling in an outline, is bondage. Why is Paul writing to them to explain this? Because that works both ways, and they have now gone from bondage to redeemed and back to bondage. Now, as you look and you look at that section of Scripture, you'll see that word but several times to begin a particular passage. Notice the flow again. Verse 3, you were in bondage. Verse 4, you were redeemed. But going down to verse 9 again, but you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements. You go back. And this is their status, folks. Their status is they are back in bondage. Now, this is simply where they are, okay? They're back in bondage in one sense. But we might say something like, well, you know, they're back in bondage. That's just where they are. Just kind of like I might say, well, I've joined the Lions Club, maybe the the local Lions Club, and and I wasn't a member, and then I joined, and then I resigned, right? That's that simple. I was or wasn't than I was, and now I'm not. But that's not simply their status. In fact, that is Paul's concern here. That is not simply a life status, like I joined a club, and now I've stepped out of the club again. This is a problem. And how do we know that? Well, we go back to chapter 1 and verse number 6 again, and we notice that Paul says, I marvel. Now, For anyone who sits in these first couple of rows here and they hear the word marvel, all they think about is cartoons and comic books and that kind of thing, right? Paul is saying more than that, though. Obviously, he is saying, I am puzzled. 
I am bewildered. I am astonished. I am amazed. How can it be that you have heard the grace of Christ and you would go back into bondage? This is a problem. It's not simply a status. And can I suggest and hope that you begin to understand now why this matters to us? We'll come back to it in our conclusion in just a moment. But have you ever known anyone that you looked at and you said, I I wonder, I don't understand how they could taste, as we say, the blood of Christ in a sense and enjoy and taste that grace and then go back into bondage. But how do we know that's a problem? Not just chapter 1, verse 6, but notice chapter 3 and verse number 1. What are the strong words that Paul uses there? Oh, foolish Galatians. You know, I joked a moment ago that the word boy, you know, sometimes is bad. You ever been called a fool before? Most of us don't like that either, right? When somebody says you're a fool, he says you guys are foolish, But notice also chapter 3 and verse number 3. Are you so foolish? What's he doing? He's hammering the point home. I marvel. I don't get it. You've tasted the grace and you're going back. Oh, foolish Galatians. He's not mincing words. He's saying you lack the spiritual depth that you need and you're foolish. You've You Gentile Christians, you've left one prison of paganism and idolatry for another. For the Gentiles in particular, they have left the paganism, but now they've gone over to the law of Christ. Again, that hybrid. You've left one prison for another. What's the point? What's the deal here? And of course, in chapter 4 and verse 9, again, he calls it weak and beggarly elements. He's getting pretty firm that this is a problem. But then notice in chapter 4 and verse number 11. Why do we know this is a problem? Because he says, I am afraid for you. The King James Version, I believe, says of. He's not afraid of them. He is afraid for them. And look forward to what he says about this issue of falling back into the law in chapter 5 and verse number 2. Where he says... The problem is, why this is a problem, is if you go back to that law, Christ will profit you nothing. Christ will profit you nothing if you go back to bondage. You see, this last status, this bondage, redeemed bondage, this last bondage, it's not a status like I'd post on Facebook, oh, I'm here in Tennessee, oh, I had a great day. It's not just a status. This is dangerous. Paul says, This is serious, and I am afraid for you. So what's the goal then? Let's think about what we know. They've been in bondage. They've been in bondage to idols, to worldly thoughts, to the law. They've come to know redemption. They've gone back into bondage again. So how do we avoid this? And he says it in chapter 4 and verse 19, the second part, until Christ is formed in you. How is it that you can be in such a way that you don't worry about falling? Well, no one is perfect. I look across the room here, and I think about our brothers and sisters that are 70 and 80 and, and in their 90s, and we say, well, they must have it all figured out, right? They've got it all figured out, and when we reach a certain age, we don't have to worry anymore. That's not it. Nobody's perfect. No one's totally immune. 
But when you are formed in the image of Christ, when you are living in such a way that people see you and they think about Christ, that is the type of lifestyle that it takes. That is the way in which we should live to where we can avoid bondage again. The title of the lesson this morning is Christ Formed in You because that is the goal. Do not be taken back into bondage, but to allow Christ to be formed in you. No one should be able to say, well, Christ is formed in me, and I am better today, and I'm stronger, and I'm able to handle temptations of the world because Christ has been formed in me, and that's enough. I don't have to do any more. No, it's, it's a constant effort. But as Christ is formed in us, we should be able to say that we are trying, we are working, and we are stronger. And when Christ is formed in us, we are less likely to go back into bondage. And again, there are future words about this too. In chapter 5 and verse number 1, Paul says, Therefore, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again. With what, Paul? With a yoke of bondage. He uses that phraseology again. Don't go back to the yoke of bondage. Stop going back to these weak and beggarly elements. Paul usually doesn't say something just once and that be it, right? You, you sense as you read the, the letters that he is begging. He is imploring them. And so he says it here. Stand fast. Do not become entangled again. Folks, here's the thing. We do not have a Moses problem, right? I said the problem is a Moses-Christ hybrid. And if I'm being honest, I don't get calls, and I'm assuming the elders don't either, that say, hey, when are you guys going to start sacrificing again? You know, when is it that we're going to start uh, allowing Joel to bring bulls up in the pulpit on Sunday? Uh, can you give us a few more rules to follow? We really want more things to have to do and to obey. That's not what happens. We don't have a Moses problem, but we absolutely sometimes have a bondage problem. And it's sort of like those Gentile Christians. It's not so much going back to the law of Moses that's an issue, but sometimes for us, it's just the worldly ways. We have come to taste redemption and we go back to the weak and beggarly elements. I'm being a little facetious when I say that we're not getting calls to offer more sacrifices, but it's true. The Galatians had a Moses problem. We don't have that. And somebody could say in Galatians 4, we don't need that. That doesn't apply to us. We're just not going to read that. No, there's some benefit to us to study this passage. But we don't have a Moses problem. When Paul calls the law of Moses, what Paul calls the law of Moses is bondage. And we can absolutely have a bondage problem. Have you ever watched someone get swallowed up by the world again after they became a Christian, get pulled down by those chains and that bondage, it's tough. And maybe you've been there before. Like the Gentile Christians, it may not be the law of Moses, but it may be any type of idolatrous, pagan, worldly lifestyle that can consume us and cause us to fall back into our worldly ways. Now, we're going to pick up this afternoon with verse 21. But notice how Paul ends verse number 20, if you still have your Bible open there. He says, I have my doubts about you. 
ooh, that's kind of stinging, right? That kind of hurts. You don't trust us, Paul? You don't believe us? You don't think we mean it? Paul says, no, I know you're human, and it's easy to fall back in those worldly ways. Friends, it's why it's important for us to not only study Galatians chapter 4, but to pause at the end of our lesson this morning to extend heaven's invitation. Don't stay in that status of being in bondage. If you have come to taste redemption and grace and the love of Christ, don't go back. Don't become entangled again. The possibility exists this morning that first and foremost, a person has never known but known Christ and tasted that redemption. We sing to encourage you that you would become a Christian this day, that you would be baptized for the remission of your sins. As Joe prayed just so wonderfully for us a moment ago, we feel that, that passion that we would study with you as soon as possible to help you understand what a person needs to do to, un, to have the saving power of the blood of Christ. But maybe, brother or sister, you're here this morning, you've done that, but you've wandered away. You've gone back into bondage. Don't become entangled again. Don't go back. Continue to serve Christ. Let Christ be formed in you. Not that you're perfect, not that you're immune, not that it won't ever happen again, but that you are stronger and you're better able to withstand those weak and beggarly elements. That you're not going to become entangled again with the bondage of the world. But the possibility also exists that maybe you're here and you've done that. We're thankful that one of our elders elders will be coming forward in a moment to, to receive you, to pray with you and for you. The family is gathered together to pray with you and for you. Even now as we stand together and as we sing.